Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. In our final episode of the year, we all travelled to Melbourne for a live show in the beautiful Trades Hall. Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea, Guardian Australian Managing Director Dan Stinton joined cryptologist Vanessa Teague and CRT fellow Jordan Gow with me on stage. Got here. We offered free drinks and there's enough people that have filled half a room, so thanks for coming. We, we actually are together for the second time ever. The first time was when we went down to Canberra to attempt to lobby on privacy reform a few months ago. And I know Dan and Lizzie had never met. And it was really interesting. We just built a relationship just by doing a Zoom and then turning it into a podcast and now we're trying to turn it into something something else. So it's taller than I thought in real life. But I thought I thought what I'd do is yeah, exactly the height I thought you would be. Oh. But the table's really good because it kind of gives that zoom feel because we still don't have legs. So that's <laughs> So let's get let's get started. So guys, clap. Welcome to Burning Platforms. Um we want to acknowledge we're on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise next year is a really important moment to make peace with our history. So, welcome to Burning Platform's end of year podcast recorded live in Melbourne. In this episode we will be discussing the civil aspects of the big consumer technology stories of 2022 and exploring how Australian society can be better served by technology in the future. That was written by a bot. Um, <laughs> GPT chat, which Dan has been all over over the last couple of weeks. So has anyone um, had a crack at GPT? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's interesting, I reckon, Dan, because they're basically outsourcing the product development to a bunch of people like us who want to play with it. And <laughs> is that okay? Or is that smart? Or is that just well, what you'd expect from... I think that's what you'd expect from most Silicon Valley companies that release things into the wild without con concern for the potential downsides of it. I think that's, uh, that's what we've come to expect, isn't it? I mean, so it's a pretty been... amazing bot, though. Like, it's, it's quite remarkable for those of you that haven't had to play with it. It's, um, I mean, the, the plausibility and the compelling nature of the answers that you put into, the, into the, the chatbot are quite remarkable. I think it's a bit of a step change, actually, in, um, in, in computing, but um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, Lizzie, um, you can see the applications already for um, journalism, for law, for policy. Um, have you had a play? I have had a play. I did ask uh, um, it whether Santa was real. And it, it, it had a paragraph and it ended with whether or not Santa is real depends upon your personal beliefs and cultural background, <laughs> which is not accurate. <laughs> And also, it feels hilariously uh, 2022. I was talking about this with Dan before. I'm not sure I totally understand the revolutionary potential that Dan's talking about. Like, in some ways, um, it feels to me that uh, what passes for journalism sometimes, particularly on somewhere like the Daily Mail, is already a form of um, plagiarism. I mean, they... Other news agencies have experienced this where a story is taken and reinterpreted by the Daily Mail and published for clicks. And sure, they may outsource that to chatbots, but um, in some ways I feel like some of this has already been happening. And um, I, I, 
I'm less excited about the revolutionary potential, or excited, or uh, less um, think thinking less about the re revolutionary potential, a bit more thinking about how you might have a situation where, um, in fact, you have this problem of garbage in, garbage out. What what happens when we train a bot like this on the corpus of material that's on the internet? What kind of biases will be in there that then become harder to shake? Um, what kind of biases are we not able to detect? And that's I feel like much more concerned about that rather than say um, wondrous at the potential of this kind of tech yeah I as someone that's always loved the creation of words loved writing but also loved bouncing off other people on words it feels really sterile that you just put in a request and the words come back to you that it feels like we're missing something here um, now you know not everyone wants to write Shakespeare every day and I, like I torture metaphors for a living Dan but um, <laughs> you know is it taking us down a road of effectively depersonalising the way we use language because we can just, you know, do a Wahakim Phoenix on it and just tell them what we want and it comes back at us? Yeah, I think by definition it's the depersonalising language. But what I think is interesting about it is that, well, what Lizzie and I were talking about earlier, which I think is probably relevant for this conversation now, is so much of, of uh general reporting in journalism is just reporting on the facts. So, you know, covering a court case, reporting on the what happened during an AFL match and the like. That's the kind of thing that I can see something like this, like ChatGPT, being used for. Not for, obviously, the, the human analysis and the, the conversation about it afterwards, but just reporting in a fairly sterile manner what has taken place. Many publications are already doing this, by the way, with other um, computing technology, which enables them to write, sort of, for example, you know, automated articles on yeah, company finance, reports and those sport, sort of things. Yeah, and I just think this is going to turbocharge that. has always been automated. The, the, yeah. the hope is, right, that this, this enables, this frees up journalists to do the more important analysis and provide the context and the things that the chatbot won't be able to provide. The downside, though, is we're probably going to see a whole bunch more Daily Mail-style reporting. Probably shouldn't say that about our competitor, but nonetheless, we're going to see a whole bunch more um, of that kind of generic reporting based on what's already out there on the internet. There's probably going to be a whole bunch more of that than there has been previously, which is not, not necessarily a good thing, right? The developments this year have also been in images, and we, we talked earlier this year about Loeb. Um, we also, this was one of your contributions to the year, an AI of one middle-aged man, one tech bro and a woman recording a podcast about technology against a futuristic backdrop. Um, Lizzie, what about pictures? Yeah, it's so interesting. So people have been experimenting with the Lenser um, platform where you could you can put photos in and then it will give you a, a, an avatar for use in on various platforms but um this was one <laughs> we, we created this is some, the latest one i created some images earlier this year for our podcast because i said give me some images of two two guys and a woman doing a podcast and of course the woman was always on the side of the frame mostly pushed out and um two dudes were talking um although one guy did appear to have a vagina attached to his face it was very <laughs> odd anyway i'm not sure what this image is this is you pretending to look like Keanu no Reeves. this is dan yeah. putting That's... himself through a Keanu Reeves filter well not, not intentionally by the way, this is this is the Lenser app, which um, again is using AI to generate images. You, you, the, the idea for those that uh, are uninitiated is you, you upload 10 to 20 photos of yourself to this app, and then it comes back and it effectively creates all these different beautified versions of yourself. It made me look like Keanu Reeves, which um, is so greatly that, appreciated. Did that, did that look like a photo that you uploaded or not? 
no. No. Yeah, see, I think you've softened some of the edges there, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because there's women who are reporting putting photos in and then immediately getting topless photos back, which I think is also extremely telling because what is this app training on? It's training on data from the internet and a huge amount of the internet obviously involves porn. And, they're, you know... The and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> clearly. Um, and so there's like this... What are we doing here? We are permitting, again, the bias in the, in the corpus of data that exists online to then infect our future. And um, is there a, an opportunity for us to take stock and arrest that trend rather than lean into it, which seems to be what's happening with apps like Lenser? Mm. I'm interested in both um, the chat bot and also, I guess we call this the picture bot, I don't know, the image bot. But what... Is, are they just toys or what are the business models around these technologies going to be? And if we look at the way other technologies develop to really become advertising platforms, um, have we got reason to be concerned about how these roll out when there is a commercial imperative behind them to make some dosh? Yeah, without question, I think. I mean, the what I think is likely to happen good and bad, is we're going to see a huge increase in the volume of content that is generated, be that images or be that text-based content. And someone, somewhere, is going to figure out that the, the most engaging content is probably the most controversial, as we've seen on Facebook and the like so far. There's going to be an absolute torrent of new uh, content being created and no doubt advertising thrown around it in order to make a buck. So, I mean, that's just one of the many downsides of this tech that I can see coming down the line. I just think if we think we've seen had misinformation problems so far, I think we haven't seen nothing yet. I think it's going to get so much worse as more and more content is, is, is thrown out into the wild using this tech. I think it's also telling, we talk about the role of automation and robots eating all the jobs. This has been like a trope of, I guess, the last 10 years. And whether that's true or not has been the cause of some analysis. But I think it's really telling that the work that's getting automated is not the most difficult, the most dangerous work, the most mundane. It's actually things like artistry <laughs> and writing, um, things that make us human. And uh, this has then been outsourced to a bot. So what automation is being progressed or the uh, how automation develops is dependent on what is likely to, to generate revenue and profit and that that is not necessarily what's best for us as a society. So that's what it gives me pause for thought looking at some of this imagery. Mm. Um, Google. So the other, the other interesting take I've heard on the chatbots in particular is that the big... Um, risk is for search. So instead of entering in a question into a search engine getting a result, the chatbot's going to do all that work for you. Um, now, does Google then need to come and take over all these companies or is this going to be an insurgency that actually creates a better, a better model? I don't know. Oh, I'm I, I, asking Dan because I, I keep thinking he's the guy that will probably have worked out how it's all going to make money. Um, I'm not sure. Sorry, that's a just fair make assumption, Dan, but um, yeah. uh, nonetheless, I mean, it's it's worth noting that Google is one of the biggest investors in artificial intelligence on the planet. So I dare say they would already be seeing the potential of this for use in their applications. I think Google Search. I mean, I've I've been reading lots about the the potential for this technology to replace. Uh, Google search. 
I think I'm leaning towards that it probably won't. You have to remember that most Google searches are, you know, for shopping or for e-commerce or for something or to, to read a news article or to find out the latest news. I don't think that's something which AI is necessarily well suited to. But, yeah, there is a small proportion of searches which are, you know, tell me about, um, summarise the history of... Uh, the last hundred years of Australia, and a, a chatbot can probably do that pretty well in a, in a better way than ten blue links can from from Google. But, but with I, no source material or anything, like at least Google takes you on a bit of a journey, right? Well, that, that's the that's the other thing about this. It is often wrong and confidently wrong. Like when and you read no... the responses, it, it sounds like it knows what it's talking about, but it doesn't. It's a lot like our podcast. It's, <laughs> it, it's <laughs> <Help me yourself. laughs> sorry, my come my on, you've just the podcast, broken the say. magic. Um, but anyway, I, that, that's the thing. I mean, I think it's it's it does this. It's got such a compelling tone of um, or turn of phrase that when you read it, you you can be convinced by it. But it can be completely wrong half the time because it's just based on what's on the internet, right? So, so that's ima the problem. imagine if that's happening for doctors making a diagnosis. You know, this is the kind of classic idea that doctors miss things, or you know, they've got their own internal biases, and then they use a consult something else, and then to to look at differential diagnoses and then you use a program like this, but if there's no source material, what's the point? And then if there is source material, then you're, you're not really offering a service. You're collating documents in the same way that search would do. So I do wonder about the utility of it um, as opposed to search, which is then a categorisation of documents, which, again, it involves a recipe. It's not, um, it's not necessarily scientific, but uh, in the settings in which it's becomes quite critical. I can understand why you'd need to see what's behind the decision-making rather than a, a, beautiful, um, a beautiful piece of writing that may conceal its own, their own pro the problems with it, with the logic. That is a beautiful point. I reckon it's time to play Dan or Bot. So, <laughs> we have got a number of statements that could have been written by Dan or could have been written by a chatbot. And... This could be quite difficult because Dan's writing style is pretty technocratic. Oh, my <laughs> um, God. Yeah, I, I genuinely didn't know. Yeah. So, round one. And Dan has asked, summarise the main benefits of purpose limitations in privacy regulation. Here I'm is the statement. Purpose limitations are an important principle in privacy regulation and limit the collection and use of consumer data to specific purposes. This has the benefit of allowing consumers to be more confident about what data is collected about them and what it is used for. Dan or bot? Come on, tell us, people. Oh, yeah. oh. gosh. This is going to yeah. confirm or deny whether I'm the most boring yeah. person in the whole room. <laughs> um, I'm really worried about the 29% who think it's you, Dan, but um, it's a bot. Have we got three rounds here? It was a little bit more interesting. Summarise the definition of a tech bro. It was a picture of Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> that one. And the answer, tech bro is a pejorative term used to describe a privileged man that has gained undue benefits from the technology industry. They are generally lacking in diverse backgrounds and out of touch with the negative impacts of consumer technology's impact on society. On occasion, they can be foolish enough to spout their naive optimism on the future of tech on a podcast that critiques this very topic and are often surrounded by much smarter members of the panel. It's definitely accurate. Definitely, Dan. Oh, no, the bot could have done that. Yeah, we need a bit more about. No, it's, a, it's, it's two, to, two to one. There you go. Yeah, that was Dan as well. So <laughs> it was bot, Dan, Dan. Thanks for playing, yeah. Dan or bot. Yeah. Yay. Yay. I think there's prizes. If you got, if you got all three right, come in and then you are equal top in the quiz at the end, 
you can come and challenge for Jordan's book, okay? Mm. That seems fair. Um, all right, so I had a bit of paper at one point. Oh, you oh, better yeah, give yeah. it back to me. Thank you. Um, so let's move on. So normally if these people listen to this, and it's really weird actually because when we're doing this on a Zoom, I don't know, it feels... Flatter? No, it feels more... I don't know. Like it feels faster. <laughs> um, but anyway, it shouldn't be. So real life is an interesting thing, an interesting construct. So the next section I was just wanting to throw out there because... Um, I am 28 days into my 31 day of deactivation of my Twitter account. Um, I left Twitter or I deactivated the account um, when Trump was re, re um, inspired. I've really enjoyed not feeling like I need to check everything. I've changed my toilet habits significantly. My <laughs> phone no longer goes in there. I'm back to the crossword. Um, but I also feel I'm losing something because there is a lovely community. So do we... And Lizzie, I'm particularly interested in imagining, how, how do you imagine a life where you're not on this ubiquitous platform? You said to me when I said we should go and set something else up, I'd rather just have quiet for a while. I do notice you have not left, although I wouldn't know, but people tell me. Um, how are you thinking this through? Like, it's obviously a bad guy's running it. There is demonstrable... Um, damage that is done by the spread of disinformation if people don't take it seriously. But then, does one individual make a difference and should I sort of walk away from this whole network on a, on a stand or, you know, should I sort of suck it in and sort of wait for the next outrage? I mean, I feel like we're going to talk about Jordan's book later in the show, but um, Jordan's book is a pretty good guide for thinking about your relationship with technology and working out what's right for you. And I think it is probably a personal decision. But I must say, like, I was scrolling the other night. I've got a very small baby and... Um, you get a lot of downtime with one hand free when you're breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it's not as bad as the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I just came across Elon Musk's tweet about my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. And I just thought, this guy's so horrible. It's not really nice being here. It's very unpleasant. I don't like seeing this kind of humanity on display. I think I'd rather be in places where uh, the best of the human spirit is on offer and you um, gain from that and you contribute to that. Um, but I, uh, I can see the, the potential in investing in real-life relationships instead. I've got a cute baby. I'd rather spend time with him than spend time with Elon Musk. So I'm, I value the lacuna that's kind of created, but I haven't actually deleted. But um, mm. maybe, maybe I will. I, I certainly don't feel the It looks the like I'm on the way out. It's pretty there. close. There's a few it more people close. to vote. Um, you know, I'm going to vote myself. The, the other question is, are there alternatives? Oh, do you want to stay there? I want to know if I'm gone or not, so. Um, <laughs> but, Dan, we've looked at a few alternatives. The other thing I'm really serious about thinking through, even with a little community like this, is whether there, are, there is an alternate platform that we can stay connected on. Like, it might just be email, but that seems a little bit exclusive. For those that don't know, we... We've got this fantastic volunteer, Amy Denmead, who's not down here tonight, but she sends us an amazing aggregator of news almost on a daily basis. I think she gets up and looks for that. And, and, and like, that is how we research our show. We go through Amy's um, emails. Now, couldn't we f imagine a platform where that's being shared more broadly? Um, you know, there's all these um, alternates that are being offered up, Mastodon, Post, you know, Discord. Like, is there a place, I, you know, that we can house at least a bit of communal knowledge so that people can jump in and share it? 
Like all of these things, I think it is dependent on the people that are there. That's probably a very obvious statement. But I think the promise of Mastodon, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, is still something which is worth exploring. Because if you can get enough people that care about the issues that we talk about every week there, sharing interesting information, then it becomes a really engaging platform. You know, the more people that are there of a similar mindset doing those sorts of things in, it's hard to get all of those people to move at the same time. But I don't know. I don't think we should give up on Mastodon yet, Peter. I reckon we should create a burning platforms uh, community. Yeah, I reckon own. we should try one of them. I just don't have the skills to set it up. So if anyone's a volunteer, like... Uh, but I'm out of Twitter, yeah, clearly. 39. Oh, few sorry undecided. to see you guys. True follower of God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and God is now on Mastodon. So when God left, tweet of God left Twitter... Um, his, he said, fuck you, Musk, I'm off to Mastodon. So there he goes. Um, we've got a little video of um, Elon Musk and his um, adoring hordes to play while our first <laughs> guest for the night, Vanessa T, comes up on stage. Come up, Vanessa. Did people see this? It was pretty cool. It was, it's just people booing. You can join in the booing if you like. Boo. Anyway, I'll introduce Vanessa, who is, amongst other things, the chair of Democracy Developers and the creator of the Right to Ask app. And she's going to do a bit of a live demo for us. Well, I thought I was, but I'm not sure where I'm Oh, the tech's not going to work. Can Sophie make the text work? We could sort of filibuster for a couple of minutes. But anyway, so... Vanessa and Lizzie got to know each other on one of the many battles for digital rights over the years. Yes. Do you want to sort of talk about that? We've, we've worked together on many campaigns using technology as a tool of to improve democracy. And I wanted, I thought it was a good opportunity for you to show what it does and talk about what motivated you to build it. Okay, I, I would love to do the demo if anybody can uh, give me a little USB dongle, but in the absence of, uh, in the absence of tech, tech support, I think I'll just have to talk about it. So the intention is to make a Australian-owned open source non-commercial platform for raising political questions. And the idea is that it's just for that, it's very specific, and it's set up to understand the Australian parliamentary system and help people to engage, not, not so much with elections, it's not a campaign tool, it's a tool for suggesting good questions for parliamentary processes during the two and a half to four years when it's not election time. So, the original motivation came from yet another, yet another digital rights campaign where many of us were sitting around looking at the COVIDSafe app, realising that uh, it wasn't working, not because of the download numbers, but because it didn't work. <laughs> and watching these very powerful parliamentary processes in which very well-intentioned people are doing their best to get to the bottom of it, and failing because they don't know what's actually going wrong. Right, so I watched a bunch of good senators trying to ask the uh, DTA people why it wasn't working and getting BSed about with download numbers. Remember the download numbers, right? It's really um, disruptive, isn't it? The, because often you make a political campaign and you just send emails at a politician, whereas this is a much more sophisticated, 
sort of analysis of where power and decisions are getting made and you're channeling citizens into where it matters. Yeah, it's like when Elon Musk got booed by a whole lot of people. It's like actually politicians will then have to face the public that who elects them and then um, figure out what they're actually interested in hearing about or, or saying. And a lot of government also happens in these committees where questions can be asked about various policies or various pieces of legislation. And often um, the argument was is put that most people don't care about this stuff. And that's what was put in relation to encryption, for example, the, the toller bill. True, unfortunately. Yeah, except that we did manage to get, like, 14,000 people making a submission that was standard form, right? But they took the time. It was an equivalent to an email send. It was a standard form. But then you can go and say, well, you know, 14,000 people are interested in this, so maybe you do need to take it seriously. And, um, you know, it deserves a response. And... Uh, I think it's a way of um, distilling what can be complex issues and sort of tedious or obscure processes and giving people access to ask and document questions that can be put and then what answers you get. And I like that idea, removing the barriers, removing the friction to people engaging with people they've elected who are making decisions about policy and also a bit of crowdsourcing of expertise so that those who get elected who aren't always experts in these particular fields have the tools at their disposal to ask the right question. I don't know if that was your intention. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what it's for. You said it much better than I did. <laughs> so how close are we to being able to use it? Like, apart from the technical snafu tonight. Um, so there's, <laughs> there, there's a privacy review that's, you know, on foot and we're expecting, you know, I think the first big digital battle... Surprising amount of interest because I think nobody wants to feel like they're being left out. It's exact, It's the opposite of the Twitter thing, right? Uh, as soon as anybody thinks that everybody else is on it, then everybody's going to want it. And, um, of course, politicians tend to be more interested in projecting their own questions than absorbing questions from the community. So there's a little bit of alignment to be made about whether the thing they think they're interested in is actually the thing that I'm building. Um, but I, I hope that it will actually be a useful tool for them because I'm hoping that it will aggregate. Instead of them getting 10,000 emails, they'll get... Uh, it's actually been quite carefully designed so that people are, are put under pressure, basically, to, to aggregate support for a small number of questions rather than just kind of writing their own slightly different thing. So I'm getting humans to do the aggregation rather than the AI, is the hope. And then hopefully the, the benefit for the MPs is a, you know, a prioritised list of 10 questions instead of 10,000 slightly different versions of the same question. Well, congratulations and really looking forward to playing with the tool, Vanessa. Stay up on stage. We're going to keep things going and invite our second guest for the night, the wonderful Jordan Gow, up here to talk about his book, <laughs> Disconnect, which you've all got to buy by the end of the night. What's it like being a published author talking about how bad technology is? Well, you can tell me, and Lizzie well, can Lizzie tell me can, as well. I'm joining well, an illustrious club. Yeah. But, but it's interesting. We, uh, you guys have been talking about tech issues for a while, right? So I think we've been navigating that. But one of the, the unique points of difference that drove the book is you know, I've been trying to engage the general public with tech issues, and um, people kind of just gloss their eyes over when you start talking tech, it's really quite difficult to engage the general public with that. So um, the approach for the book was to create personas that basically encapsulate what the tech issues are. So characters like an online conspiracy theorist, freedom fighters that protest you know, lockdowns and vaccine mandates, 
trolls, screen addicts. So all of a sudden... Tech and how much about is it about us and what is the relationship between the two? Yeah, well, well I, I spoke to lots of really interesting characters and a lot of the interviews were quite intense because obviously a lot of them I didn't agree with. Um, but I think it was worthwhile because it, I think it's worth us colouring in those people instead of uniformly dismissing them. And what I found was that there was so much trauma. And, you know, being from Melbourne, one of the most locked down cities in the world, like clearly that had some sort of effect. So I think that, you know, the human relationship with technology was actually a really interesting discovery through the book. Um, and that, you know, there were real people behind this. There's real trauma and, and real issues. And, and we're all still kind of trying to figure that out. I think it's still an interesting period of reflection that we're coming out of um, to try and sort out what that period was all about and we were all forced online and, we're, and we're, those things are still playing out. Um, I was curious as to who you were running for because in some ways I feel like this is a good book if you are one of these people, as in... <laughs> <laughs> Self-helpful. Yeah. So it is self-helpy, like in the, in the best possible way. It's very practical. It offers you advice about what, how to identify problems, how to create your own boundaries and stuff. But it strikes me that there's more people who probably know someone who's in one of these categories and doesn't really know what to do about it. And, and it is quite uh, comforting to read this because it feels like you're not necessarily alone or it's not to be... Um, you shouldn't feel ashamed or also... There's hope, too, that you can pull people out of these worlds and excesses and um, return them to a functional relationship with the internet. And so I do think it's for both. But I wonder if you... You know, it feels to me that you're... Um, in your writing, you're, you're not judgmental. You're very empathetic with these people who've experienced this. And is that the ambition that we... Shouldn't give up on people. What I've observed since we're no longer in lockdown, life's gotten back to kind of some semblance of normality, is that we just don't talk about it anymore, but it's kind of unresolved in a way. There, there certainly hasn't been any acknowledgement from the people in my group that are, actually, I was wrong and the vaccines won't kill you. Um, is, there any way, is there any way of reconciling, particularly the misinformation side of things that's, that, that so many people were impacted by? Yeah, so really, it's really tricky. There's one case study that got out of it, but not as a result of the book, even though I'd like to credit the book. Her name was Ash Jackson. She's a Melbourne resident, and actually, um, she was on the inner circle of the freedom movement, and you know, there's a whole story to how sort of she came out. So there is hope on the other side of it, but I think for the most part, you're right, we've just sort of stopped talking about it, and it, it has softened a bit because... Obviously, all those intense conditions have softened too, but um, a big message of the book is that we ignore, we tend to ignore mental health a fair bit, um, and a big part of um, why those issues came about was because there wasn't enough public mental health support and there wasn't enough government support to actually help people deal with a lot of those things. So I think there's heaps that needs to be done still. The, the other thing I took out of it was, you know, as someone that's really into user-centred design, you are basically building personas. And I know I've posed this question to you previously, Jordan, but it's a good one, um, which is technology develops to make money for venture capitalists. Like, the, the, the model that we use to develop tech is very much one to build wealth. Whereas if you're actually building technology to truly um, meet the needs of users, it would be very diff different. And it's not just about regulation, I think it's about an entire mindset. And I'm just interested in your reflections. Having seen, you've built these compelling personas, how would you do it differently? 
Yeah, well, we've sort of, we sort of talk, you guys talk about that a lot in that, that it is the Las Vegas model of the internet, which is hyper addictive, completely for profit. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Just how could you use social media data to track people who might be in breach of anti abortion laws in different states or license plate reading technology to track out of staters who are coming? Anyway, it's appalling. Anyway, the crypto crash is winning at the moment. Dan, oh, crypto. No. no, 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 quick. The data breaches has been really big and um, legislation through the House over the last couple of weeks, mm -hmm. they've got tough hackers, they've got tough on data fraud. But perhaps not on the causes of hacking yes. um, because they also don't mind that um, telcos are still required to hold significant amounts of personal information on users as a legacy of national security Laws. Um, Australia, I think, has passed over 90 national security laws. Vanessa's got something to say about this. Um, since 9-11, and that involves the holding of huge amounts of information. And then, of course, it's no surprise that that becomes a source of criminal activity in the sense that uh, hackers are attracted to those data pools and seek to gain access to them. So there's a bigger question around getting tough on the causes of yeah. cyber hacking too, oh, as well as confronting like cyber security weaknesses. It just feels to me they're, building, they're trying to build strong walls, but the honeypot's just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, so. to mix a metaphor. Yeah, I know. That's what I love doing. <laughs> what do you reckon, Vanessa? What's um, your hot take on the data breaches? Yeah, I completely agree with Lizzie. I mean, we have, we have been telling them for the best part of a decade that maximising data grabbing without any actual support for actual defence was going to result in disaster. And lo and behold, here we go. And even though I do support the increased penalties, there isn't a serious conversation about reducing the actual cause of all of this highly sensitive data sitting around. Or, or, or the right to, to data minimisation, which might um, mitigate against some of this. Absolutely. Know. Um, I think I'd largely just echo those points. I think we're sort of missing the bigger picture here. It is welcome. It is welcome that there are decent penalties now for these data breaches and, and not just make it a, a burden for consumers, but something which companies have to take responsibility for. But um, perhaps yeah. that can be for next podcast. Well, you know, I reckon 2022 was the year that privacy stopped being boring. I think one of our early ones was why is privacy boring? And it is really boring. Um, it's not as boring as Dan as a chatbot. Uh, <laughs> Dan versus Which was all about privacy, but by the way. So when, anyway. when your Medibank records are out there and, you know, you're... Your Optus account's been breached. It's not. It, it's kind of. It becomes important. And my, my hope for 2023 is that you're not writing about your vasectomy. In I'll, the Sydney I'll write Herald. about the something. I'll, I will overshare in some way. I promise you. I've, um, my relationship with God is the subject of today's um, discussion. Um, but the trick, I reckon, and you know, obviously, this is a pretty niche conversation. Some of you just come to us because it was free drinks. So we're, we're spending an hour talking about tech, which is in the weeds. But how do we take that highly technical discussion and bring it to life. Now, the hackers help, but we can't let this tougher penalties then stop the push to actually create a system that is going to treat our information with more respect. And that's going to be a really big political challenge. Next year, there's going to be a heap of noise. There's going to be attempts to say a little bit's enough, like you guys should be happy with what you've got. And so can we extend out the conversation? Organisations like Digital Rights Watch, you know, publications like The Guardian, how do we actually make a moment where we can demand some consequential action on something that really matters? 
Yeah, I think there's some real utility in financializing the risk as well because when it comes to data, holding data by public companies, it's sort of unclear who that sits with, who the responsibility sits with. Is it the chief information officer? Is it the board? Is it the, um, is it the in-house legal counsel? And if there are large penalties that are significant in terms of the company's bottom line, it becomes kind of like divesting the financialized. But of course, there's a cultural question around how we build movements that are capable of creating that that public dialogue that, that will support that law reform. And I think we're close to getting there. I'm very excited about 2024, so let's... 2023. <laughs> let's, see, yeah. let's see where we are in 2024. And, you know, this little toy we've been playing with or tool or toy we've been playing with is actually part of the infrastructure to build um, common understanding and move people along. So hopefully we'll be playing a bit more with this as it rolls out. You've been listening to The Last Burning Platforms of 2022. It was recorded live in the Vic Trades Hall Common Room on December 13. Thanks for all of you who turned up for what was a fun night. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Land by Jennifer Macy. We'll be back in 2023.